Welcome to Single Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm a writer and a podcaster. I have a uh, newsletter. I, I co-host a podcast called Blocked and Reported. Hope you'll check that all out if you haven't. Um, this is just a show where I mostly just sort of take calls and talk about whatever people want to talk about. Occasionally there's guests. I'm going to have more guests coming up. Um, there's always some scheduling challenges there, but I've got, I've got some good ones in mind. Today, I just want to give a quick spiel, and then I'll take your questions on whatever. I, I have had the January 6th stuff on my mind. This is one of those areas where I do this sort of immature or unproductive thing where I'll see some bad columns on something or I'll see some like really unhinged Twitter discourse and I'll just sort of be like, well, I'm going to stay away from that subject. And I, I think that might have the effect of like driving, assuming I can safely be described as normal, normal people out of a discussion space, leaving it to like the more opportunistic or hyper-partisan people. But just the anniversary has gotten me thinking a little bit about like democracy and, and America and, uh, I'm just sort of very worried about the future, like 2024 and on. I, it's less, so there's one concrete worry, which is Donald Trump running again in 2024 and running on the basis of the fact that the election was stolen from him and he's going to swoop back in and, and rescue America from Joe Biden because he never should have been out of office. That's going to be his argument if he runs. But more broadly, I just, I don't, and I'm very curious to get everyone's thoughts on this. I don't really see how the nation could withstand any close election going forward, any close presidential election without incurring a huge amount of damage and dysfunction. Uh, our closest call on that front was 2000. And for those on, who are maybe a little too young, like I couldn't even begin to describe how crazy it was. Just, just Google Brooks Brothers riot uh, and you'll get a sense of the kind of crazy we're talking about. I was... Um, 17, about to turn 18, I was in high school. I remember them wheeling this TV into the library so that if you had a free period, you could watch this all unfold on CNN. But imagine that sequence of events, which ended with Al Gore ending his legal challenges and saying, okay, George W. Bush is the winner and, and telling the nation to, to get behind that. Imagine that happening today. Not the last part, so I'm not sure that would happen. But, but imagine an election that close that came down to a few contested votes in one state happening in our present environment with this much hysteria and this much distrust. Or you don't even have to imagine an election that close, but imagine an election that came down to like one state and 5,000 votes. Part of the reason Trump's attempt to steal the last election failed was it just, it wasn't that close. Uh, I think a lot of people right up to Mike Pence were pressured to do the wrong thing and to throw the election to Trump but it just wasn't close enough that there was like one obvious tipping point, that there wasn't one person or group whose actions alone could have realistically swung things to Trump. So on top of whatever, you know, uh, whatever was in them morally that caused him to not do the wrong thing, there's also just the fact that their actions wouldn't have mattered that much. But at some point, that's not going to be the case. Like there's going to be a very close election at some point. And I think it's scary to think about uh, what's going to happen. I don't have any solutions here. And, I, and I, I'm slightly ashamed to admit that part of my struggle in talking about January 6th and taking this stuff seriously is like there's so much bad faith and overheated controversy. I, I, I Despite everything I'm saying, I even have qualms about calling 1-6 an insurrection per se because it's just it was so much more disorganized than that. Once they were in the Capitol, the vet, like it just bore no 
similarity to what happens in actually truly dysfunctional countries. Our country's getting there. We're not there yet. Where like armed groups can take over the capital or swing the results of an election or, or overturn it. There's just none of that. Most of these fuckers wandered around and then left when the cops, you know, sort of came back. There was obviously violence. It was obviously horrific. And Trump's role was horrific. But seeing people try to turn this into the idea that, like, we're, we're on the verge of a fascist takeover, I think, drove me away from this debate a little bit. There's also a lot of, like, opportunism with regard to political violence, like people who didn't really have a problem with it when it was left wing, suddenly falling on their fainting couches when it was right wing and my argument all along has just been political violence is bad and we should always denounce it and destruction is bad and looting are bad. People don't seem to have stable beliefs on this stuff. It seems to be truly a matter of in-group versus out-group concerns, which I think is just really pernicious. Um, I'm not trying to direct comparison here. I, I don't think the 1-6 riots were the same as like the Portland courthouse siege, but there's basically a siege on a federal courthouse in Portland for a long time that didn't get much attention. I do think attacking the capital is much worse but i don't know either you care about this stuff or you don't either you care about like the rule of law breaking down or you don't and a lot of people were flip-flopping on that which drove me crazy and i think just made me not want to engage except um occasionally in a snarky matter on twitter so i guess i do think we have a lot to be very worried about when it comes to american democracy but what's going on is a lot more complicated and probably trickier to solve than fighting some sort of fascist insurrection. If there was like a really well-organized far-right group in the U.S. armed that had some power, that would be terrifying, but it would obviously be easier to fight. You find the members and you root them out and you arrest them or kill them if they fight back. What's going on is a lot more complicated. It has to do with distrust and a deranged media ecosystem and little incentive to give an inch to the other side. That's a much less sexy problem and a much harder one uh, to solve. So... That's my uh, that's my spiel. I just think things could get really, really messy in 2024 and beyond, and I'm uh, not looking forward to it, but I hope I'm wrong, and I'm open to you guys tell me why I am wrong. Michael, you are the first caller. Michael, you're going to want to unmute yourself. Hey, Jesse. Hey. Can you How's you doing? Good. Hey, yeah. I've been a fan for a long time since you were on uh, the fifth column after the uh, the Atlantic article. Uh, so thanks for taking the call. Um, you. I hope you're on the call again sometime soon. But um, I don't have really anything helpful to say. I think we probably are largely on the same page about the uh, uh, current state of, uh, you know, what will happen after in a close election and, and January 6th and stuff like that. Um, so if it's OK, I'm, I have a more general question, uh, if that's all right. Uh, I just really was curious sure. about uh, what you felt about these call-in shows and about the app generally. I, I think I heard you say one time that you were sort of paid to be an early adopter. And so I'm just wondering, uh, you know, how you feel about the app, how you feel yeah. about the shows, whether you think it's something that you'll keep doing in the long term or. Yeah, I, I really, overall, I really like the format. I like direct conversation. I like talking to people directly. Uh, yeah, they their idea to get the app off the ground, I'm not saying anything that isn't public because they did a press release about sort of some of the early people they brought on. But yeah, they pay people to host these shows, which, you know, if you're trying to get people to download a new app um, or to, to devote some of your, their time to creating content on a new app is, I think, the only way to really do it. Uh, I really like the format. I really like the potential for sort of in-person conversation and back and forth. One thing I really want to figure out is like how to have more conversations with folks who I disagree with or who disagree with me. 
the one time I devoted a room solely to people who like to have some gripe with me or disagree with me, it was basically people who liked my work but wanted to nitpick on some little thing. And I, I was hoping for like a little more of a, a haters club or like a, I don't know, a good faith haters club because. Yeah, I, I, that's yeah. what I had hoped with that episode too. I was disappointed by how much everybody seemed to like you. <laughs> yeah, what, what can I say? I'm just an <laughs> eminently likable guy. Uh, but I, I think if you structure these conversations the right way, there's some real, real potential here. Um, you know, that the question of like how this could be monetized or make money for Colin for the parent company, I, that's well above my pay grade. But I, I really like being part of the experiment. And I, I want to, in 2022, take more advantage of it in terms of who I choose to have as guests. And also striking more of a balance between like general there's never been a time I've hosted one of these rooms, even at random hours when there haven't been a fair number of questions and good questions. So you could just do it as Q and a, but I feel like I should probably mix in uh, more guests too, which just takes a little more pre-planning and scheduling. What, what, what's been your overall stance on Colin so far? Uh, I mean, I've really enjoyed it. I mean, if, if nothing else, um, you know, it's just, it's more content, you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a primo subscriber, but so, I mean, even two episodes of black and reported, but I could use, I could use some extra. Um, so, you know, just in terms of content, I've really enjoyed it. And, uh, yeah, I think that it's interesting. I don't really listen to too many other people. I've, I listened to a little bit of Green, uh, uh, Glenn Greenwald this morning. Uh, but it's interesting just that, you know, you do get people asking sometimes sometimes weirder questions or, or things that, uh, you know, uh, the, the more famous, obviously, uh, hosts don't necessarily get from people that they talk to otherwise. So I've definitely enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I do like that idea of like you click the next call and you don't know what they're going to say. And I, I think it's it's good to hone your ability to think on the spot in situations like this. The, mm, the other, yeah. the other, the last thing I would say is um, I think I've just been lucky, especially with Locked and Reported, most of the time, like recent period during which I think my profile has gone up a little bit, maybe into the realm where I could hopefully do like live events and, and speaking invitations that's mostly been during the pandemic. So those opportunities haven't really come uh, around. So I'm hoping this can off like is a way to, you can practice public speaking basically. And and the spiels I do at the beginning of the show are ways to practice that. So that's just a a selfish thing. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, it's, it's a interesting time for content and a lot of options. And I uh, appreciate the call and the primo. Absolutely. Thanks. Simon. Bye. Thanks, Michael. Jacob, how's it going? Hey, good afternoon, Jesse. I am doing well, thank you. How about yourself? Good. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, respond to something you said on the podcast this week, just about uh, being back in Brooklyn. And even though it was blue, you were you said you were still walking past lots of coffee shops full of massless people. And uh, I live in the Upper West Side, which, for those of you who don't know, is one of the most solid blue parts of New York City and the country generally. And I will tell you that here that is very much not the case. And I would say that the majority of people are still wearing a mask, walking down the street with nobody within 10 or 15 feet of them. And I see some of that in in Brooklyn, but a lot of maskless people, too. But I mean, oh, yeah. yeah. So in, in the Upper West Side, I would say. That is very much the standard here. And I've been yelled at by strangers on the street for not wearing a mask walking down the street. This is recent? Um, last week. Wow. I guess so. One time when I was running in Prospect Park, maybe 
around the peak of the pandemic, one person made a comment. I would sort of, I like have a mask sort of flapping out to the side, but not, I can't, I right. can't run while wearing yeah. a mask. You're still, you got a negative comment from someone for not wearing a mask outside. Literally last week. Yes. That's crazy. This, so it could just be differences in like the age distribution or something. Yeah. Um, I, Upper West side is pretty old. I, I will say I, I walk a lot and I'm never wearing a mask. I have not gotten a comment. Comment, yeah. but that's you know they're different neighborhoods. Yeah, here, here on the Upper West Side, it's it only feels like things have changed a little bit since April of twenty twenty one, and part of it has been a response to Governor Hochul's new policies. A, a lot of businesses that were mask optional just went back to requiring masks because of Governor Hochul's new policies regarding enforcing one or the other, and a lot of businesses just didn't want to put somebody at the door to yeah, verify right. people's vaccination and status, like especially you know like grocery store type places. Yeah. So virtually every business that has taken down its mask mandate has restored it. Although I will say that checking on vaccine statuses is not universal. I've been to three restaurants this week and two of them did not check my vaccine card before seeing me. Say it's the same deal with bar bars and coffee shops. Like they, they usually do, but it's by no means uh, universal. I think new Orleans was the place I've been that was strictest about it. Uh, but I think that was mostly in the touristy areas because, you know, for obvious reasons. But uh, yeah. So, yeah, it, it could well be it's a neighborhood to neighborhood difference. But yeah, I will tell you here on the Upper West Side, it may as well still be April 2020. So, uh, well, thank you, Jacob. That is a, a useful data point, albeit a little bit depressing because I think at this point, given how vaccinated everyone is, no one should be policing people's outdoor mask behavior. Yeah, and I obviously you know, have to caveat, I'm only speaking from my personal experience, the restaurants I've gone to, the grocery stores I've been to, etc., etc. But, you know, somebody who lives 10 blocks away from me may say, well, at my grocery store at 67th, it was different. So, yeah. yeah. Um, well, thank you, Jacob. As we all know, the plural of anecdote is data. So I think between the two of us, we've solved this thing. Yeah, exactly. And then <laughs> also in regards to uh, the whole January 6th stuff, I sort of personally feel like a lot of the issues really are way overstated because, you know, whatever estimate you want to use of how many people were there, it's still, you know, barely a rounding error, even on people who would probably consider themselves or actually are far right. <laughs> And I also sort of just feel like this is really more of a media thing because, like, I actually do know a lot of right-wing people despite living in my blue bubble. And for most right-wing people I know, if they even think about it, it's basically just like a punchline of, oh, look at those loser idiots who felt like they had to go down to D.C. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to let you go just so you can take the next call, but I, sure. I have some thoughts on that, so I'll read from it. Thank you for the call, Jacob. Yeah, have a good week. Um, you too. Abe, hold tight for a second. I'll, I'll unmute you in a minute. Um, uh, so I, I'm of two minds on that. One is a lot of polling suggests that many Republicans still think the election was stolen, and that's really bad. I know there's there's respectable conservatives who find that embarrassing, but the polling is the polling. The other thing is like having Donald Trump there urging them on, telling them to march on the Capitol. He obviously played a big role in this, and the fact that in the Republican party, um, you sort of have to line up behind Trump to have a chance with like a few Liz Cheney-ish exceptions. I'm halfway through the Daily's three-part series on the insurrection. I'm a little, the insurrection, I just use that word, on the whatever you want to call it. Um, I'm a little behind on this, but that 
an interesting point they do a very good job of making early on is that as far as anyone can tell, the I think most of the people involved with this were not like far right extremists. It really is this collection mostly of randos and weirdos. I think the stat was like 10 or 12% had some affiliation with a right wing or far right group, but it's like, that's what's sad about it and why it's more complicated to solve this problem than if it was like an actual right wing terror group. These are just random schmucks. I hate to use the word schmucks, but they're schmucks. They who get radicalized online and they have this great uh, interview with someone um, they read from a transcript of the FBI's interview. Just this guy who just sort of finds himself there because he became convinced the election was stolen, but he didn't really have a theory about it or many thoughts about it. And then the next thing he knows, he's in the Capitol. These are adults. So I don't want to take away from the responsibility they have to not break the law, but this was not an organized I don't know. It doesn't help anyone to be like, yes, this was a big far right organized movement. The one organizing feature here is Donald Trump, and he is a very big problem. Uh, but beyond that, it was it was pretty random. Um, so as you guys can tell, complicated views on this. Abe, do you want to um, unmute yourself? Uh, hi, Jesse. Hey, oh, how's it going? Good. So I guess I... Uh... I saw a tweet from Michael Malice today, and we don't have to get into how anyone feels about him, but he brought up a good point about Trump running in 2024. He did that interview with Candace Owens recently, and it really seems to me that his base has kind of gotten lost from even him. You can look at the vaccine thing, where he has only ever championed the vaccines, but now legions of his fans just boo him. And I really do think that that speaks to what's going to happen in 2024. I think it's outgrown him in this way, which I'm, I think is bad, but I'm just very interested by that and kind of wanted your thoughts on that. Yeah, this was this thing where, um, you know, I, I have many critiques of how Trump handled COVID, but he's not, he's not a vaccine denier. And he disagreed with Candace Owens, who with her characteristic craziness was, was spreading some conspiracy <laughs> theory about that. I think there's, Tell me if you disagree, but there's probably a question between people lashing out in the moment online and then if it came down to it in 2024, not getting back behind him to support him. There's also the fact that Trump will say whatever he needs to say to if he wants to be the nominee, to be the nominee and then to win. And I think that could include some uh, vaccine denialism. But it, it was an interesting example of how like the real far right fringe has sort of is just floating out there in space somewhere, maybe not even fully attached to Trump anymore. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a good point. And Barry Weiss interviewed Kim Kardashian, and it made me think she is Trumpy in certain ways with her like celebrity status, but she's also much more appealing in every other way. And I feel like someone like that's going to come along and sort of, I don't know. Yeah, I think you're right though. Uh, Trump will do whatever he has to to win. Yeah, I I um when I was in Texas, I was hanging out with a very smart friend who does like political stuff in DC. And he, he's so disillusioned by everything. He just sort of threw his hands up. He's like, we should just have like Oprah or the rock run for president. It doesn't really matter. Like as long as we control the oval office, like I think he's just so disillusioned with how Biden has been and, and the struggles he's facing. But um, anyway, yeah. Kim Kardashian, that would be interesting. Yeah. That's who I'm voting for, but uh, thanks for taking the call. <laughs> I'm going to write in Kim. Thanks, Abe. Chewy, what's up? Hey, um, <clears throat> I don't know. So I, the, the January 6th thing, I, uh, I have, uh, like a whole bunch of complicated thoughts as well. Like f one is, um, a, I just would recommend this really interesting, um, guest opinion piece in the New York times day. It's like, what would his, what 
what could history look like in 2086? And um, by a couple of uh, historians from the Smithsonian Museum of uh, like National. Uh, oh, that history sounds interesting. Where, I didn't see that. It's super interesting, and I think it brings up a good point, which is that like um, they make a really good point where like after the Civil War, like Jefferson Davis was you know persona non grata, right? Like nobody could ever imagine anybody thinking that this is a good guy. Sixty years later, they installed a Jefferson Davis statue in the rotunda, like in the rotunda next to George Washington. Right. So like how these things seem now doesn't have any bearing necessarily for how they could be viewed in history. And they start off like, well, it's not apples to oranges, but on the other side, Martin Luther King, who at one point was very unpopular. Well, yeah, 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 no, totally right. No, totally right. It's just like, it's to, to, to like, look at these, these, you know, idiots like now, like the, the, you know, our shaman, our dear shaman, <laughs> like the, the premise of the article was like the, the the statue of the of the patriot the QAnon shaman was installed in the rotunda. Today. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> yeah, it was so interesting because I like that they brought in that example of Jefferson Davis, right? Who's like Priscilla yeah. Andrada. So these things can really change, you know, throughout history. What seems like a bunch of ridiculous schlubs right now, like I, I think Timothy and Noah had my favorite take on him, which what this like what does this like the sorriest bunch of insurrectionists you could ever yeah. see a bunch of whiners and babies. <laughs> I, I think what's what's scary, and, and this gets to the point you're making, is like there's so little there there with the conspiracy theory that Trump won, and and he yeah. he also broadcast beforehand that he was going to lie about this, and then you know it's easy for us who are like to think of ourselves as news literate and logical and rational to be like ah no one could believe that no, and exactly. Then, before you know it, it's repeated so often that it's just it's for a sizable chunk of the country. This is a true aspect of American history that an election was yeah. Stolen. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, there's a couple other points. This one is that, like, I think you overestimate actually the degree to which um, an insurrection has to be ter- terribly organized to be successful. Uh, I think, like, we can tend to look back in history at, like, insurrections in other countries and think of them as more organized than they actually were. A lot of times it is a bunch of people right. sort of coming together in, in sort of mob fashion and then, you know, making it happen. And, and obviously it didn't happen with, with this one. I just don't think it's like a... To, to the fact that it was disorganized is really a good argument for not. That's fair, but I think I think that is in weaker states. I mean, just like play, yeah, say these guys sure. had been a little bit more enthusiastic and armed and had like occupied part of the capital. How how does that end? It ends with them dying or getting driven out. But you're right; it doesn't need to be organized, and I shouldn't yeah. have um, harped on that word. And and I think like the to me the biggest problem out of this was not the insurrection itself or whatever you want to call it, the riots, whatever you want to call them. It's everything that happens in state houses around the country yeah. after this, right? Laws being changed to essentially allow state houses to overrule their voters, right? In a lot of places. And it's not just a Trump thing. This isn't like it just happened with Trump and he was like the proximate cause. It's kind of a long running thing in the last like 30 or 40 years of yeah. Republicans really taking a, a pretty nasty turn against democracy. Um, and it's kind of a piece with that. So like, I think I, I, like I get why it can be easy to just look at these little bunch of like dumb schlubs um, who happen to be in a place and, and do something stupid, but like everything that's happened afterwards has just been of a piece, like with long running trends in, in sort of the, the Republican party towards like anti-democratic rules and, you know, the rules that were sort of passed after this, um, that the next time something like this happens, we're on a lot shakier ground. And so I don't think it's really, I, 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 yeah. I caution people, you know, from overreacting about the thing, but also like there's a real problem with underreacting. Democracy is a pretty 
a pretty tenuous thing. And I think like, I think the fact that we're a long running a, a democracy, like our inertia will carry us forward through a lot of emergencies. Right. So I think that's like a strong point for us and for democracy surviving. I just, yeah, I, I, I really like caution people against, um, just looking at this and thinking it's all a hullabaloo that we don't need to pay much attention to because the fact that people don't care that much about democracy, which I think you see time and time again, but the American public means you have to really talk about yeah, it and you have to really like demonstrate yeah. to people the importance of the problems with some of the stuff that happened because they naturally kind of just don't care, you know? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, thank you, Chewy. I'm going to, I'm going to let you go, but I, one comparison I would make there is like, sometimes there'll be an airplane crash and, there's like these these little flaws that can I'm not gonna be able to use sophisticated engineering terminology here, but you can have like, you know, a little crack in the fuselage that is barely visible and, and the plane flies like normal, it flies hundreds of times and then one day it crashes and it turns out that suddenly you'd reach this breaking point without anyone realizing it. I think that's maybe what Chewy was getting at, that like you know, there's a million things happening in, in state houses around the country. There's We don't know which official is elected where. We don't know what will be the pressure point next time around. And I agree. You can't, you can't, we shouldn't understate the concerns here. They're very real. Uh, Jacob, what's up? Caller? Um, I had more of a lighter uh, question for you. Yes. Uh, you, as a notorious uh, member of the gamer American community, do you have any <laughs> uh, recommendations for games similar to Gone Home and uh, Night, Night in the Woods, games of that nature? Yeah. Uh, Firewatch, I really... I, I like Firewatch a lot uh, for that same like storytelling type of deal. Um, my uh, Hey, do you want to mute your mic? You're, I'm getting some kind of weird noise here. No worries. Um, I'm behind on games in general. Uh, I just downloaded Archvale, and it's like, I like it. It's sort of tweaking me out a little bit. It's very twitchy, but it's, it's a really good game if you like bullet hell games. Um, yeah, the closest, my closest comp for Gone Home would be uh, Firewatch. And then also The Beginner's Guide, which I think was the same dude as Stanley Par- Par- Parable. Stanley Parable, Parable, I can't fucking talk, is one of my favorite games of all time, and I just think a brilliant work of art. Uh, the Beginner's Guide is like sort of a more linear storytelling-ish version. But um, yeah, those would be my off-the-dome recommendations. Do you have any others in the genre you really like? Uh, we started playing uh, the, the Edith Finch game, which is more of a, of a horror take on uh, the kind of not-a-game walking simulator types. Yeah, I've heard nothing but good things about that. They're really yeah, good. Genuinely creepy. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Jacob. Anything else? Uh, no, thanks for all the work you do. Thanks for the call. Uh, Jacob, I'm going to skip over you just because you already uh, spoke, and I'll, I'll leave you in the queue, so you'll be next. But for now, I'm going to take Patrick first, just because uh, first call this room. Patrick, what's up? Can you hear me? I can. That's going, going pretty well. How are you doing? Uh, so I just wanted to call because I wanted to kind of feel what people were actually thinking about it. So everyone likes to say that we're on shaky ground or terrible things could happen, uh, with like kind of closer elections. But what do you actually think that that looks like? Like, let's say that kind of people went along with kind of Trump's thing on January 6th. What, what would the Democrats do? Like, do we just say, well, Pence decided not to do, and they went along with the crazy plan, so I guess we just give up. Democracy's over. That just doesn't feel right. Yep. No, so I I don't think that would happen, but I think that gets back to 2020 not being that close. My concern is 
it's not unprecedented. You have Ohio or Pennsylvania. It could come down to 2,500 votes that could swing the whole election. And you can have situations where there's genuine uncertainty about a batch of ballots or a computer glitch. Like I'm not a big Russia or China conspiracy theorist guy, but on what planet would they not be launching attacks to try to weaken our elections? Because we're rivals. I'm sure we do the same stuff to them and their infrastructure. So that's the situation that scares the hell out of me, where there's just enough uncertainty. It might be hard to know exactly who won, like genuinely hard to know who won. And then what incentive would the Democrats have to say, it's okay, the GOP won? Or would the GOP have to say, the Democrats won? So this is almost like, this scenario is almost innocent because no one's explicitly trying to steal it, but there's enough fuzziness that both sides can realistically claim what happened. I, I think that's the scenario I'm most worried about. Does that make sense to you? No, that makes sense. But even with that, though, that just sounds like what happened in 2000 when we had uh, with Florida, where there's a kind of fuzzy scenario where there'll be legal challenges and legal challenges. Um, we... Uh, not to like get all Glenn Greenwald, but I do think we have a large military apparatus that would be kind of aware. And I don't think that they would take pride in just kind of saying like, well, the Russians hacked our elections. I guess we have to go with what the foreign power wants us to do in terms of our government. And we have election and like, I, yeah, every, no one's going to say that the 2000 election uh, was a good thing, but we had eight years of Bush, which sucked, but we kind of kept on chugging. Yeah, well, so my main argument, one of my arguments is just that the country's so much more dysfunctional now versus in 2000 that I just think, um, you know, do, do would we accept a SCOTUS ruling that appeared to hand the election to someone who, who might not have won? Or, um, you know, you talk about the military sort of, uh, like, if there was evidence that Russian hackers swung the election one way or the other, the very first thing that would happen is that the presumed loser would say, no, the Russians didn't hack it. That's a crazy conspiracy theory. So I think where I disagree with you is that your scenarios rely on a set of shared facts where everyone's like, yep, we were hacked, or yep, this happened. And that's what I'm... I just think there's been enough fracturing that we should be worried that that wouldn't happen. I think that's fair. I just think that at least the military-industrial complex seems to want to leak things that support side it yep. generally wants to be on and i can't imagine that they would want to give power to a foreign power in that way and maybe that's just kind of my cynicism matched with optimism that they don't want russia yeah. to take over but no no I'm, I'm with you i'm just not sure they would be able to do enough to stop it in terms of public opinion and and uh yeah i i just i see things getting really really fuzzy because of social media because it's so much easier to uh, seed and spread misinformation than it was. Like in 2000, our biggest issue was like some fringe newsletter folks and the internet was just, just starting up and starting to get weird. And, you know, cable news was already pretty dysfunctional, but we just didn't have the frictionless spread of misinformation. I think that's what would get us if something similar happened today. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I just, I don't know. I think there'll definitely be like times of tumult, but I feel like the machine is so like wired in place that unless there's some kind of radical change the machine's just going to keep on moving yeah i can see that and, and and my concerns aren't necessarily that america would collapse but you know a six-month period during which we don't know who the president is and some people die and there's crazy street violence stuff like that where it's like contained but really bad and just like uh, sort of corrodes at the country's foundation makes us less and less credible on the world stage stuff like that but um anyway I, you're making very good points and i appreciate the call oh, thank you
All right, I'm going to take Jacob again, and then Pavi, and then I'm going to wrap this up. Jacob, what's up? Hey, yeah, I was also just going to add uh, before that uh, in terms of the whole insurrection thing, whatever term you want to call it, I do think that you really also have to follow the money when you look at all the hype around it. And I don't just mean like cable networks and their ratings, because last January 6th was their best day since, you know, who knows when. But also you're seeing, you know, people like Mark Elias, whose book of business from Democratic Party is worth tens of millions of dollars a year. He was in so, and his team were in such demand that he quit his fancy international law firm with like 10 or 15 partners, or I think was number, to launch his own firm exclusively doing that kind of work for the Democratic Party. And then you're also seeing book deals for people like Jamie Raskin, Bob Woodward, Bob Costa, who are getting, you know, tons of money to write about this. So I think that part of, you know, the hagiography around the event is also just that it's resulted in a tidal wave of money to certain groups of people. And I don't mean to just point out Democrats, like on the Republican side, Josh Hawley's book deal was dropped in the wake of the insurrection and it was immediately picked up with a right-wing publisher. So, you know, he's also yeah. probably going to see- I think there's a lot of people have a lot of direct financial incentives to tell certain stories about that. And that could even just be if you're a Democratic operative wanting to argue that we're on the brink of fascism, uh, there's that's what I meant when I talked about sort of the opportunism that I think had driven me away from this debate because it's just very thick in the air but um, that's a good point I, I appreciate it Jacob yeah and I just thought that that's like right. something that's probably been very underappreciated in the whole debate around how we're gonna history, you know record the event whatever name you want to give it yeah um, yeah no I, I agree completely thank you Jacob uh, Pavi am I pronouncing that right yeah, it's Pavi Prochko. Hi. Oh, hey, Pavi. How's it going? Uh, so uh, I, I guess I'm changing tack a little. I, I wanted to dis, uh, just mm, sort out thoughts about the Chicago public schools closing. <laughs> yeah, I haven't been following this closing. I know that that's the news. Yeah, that this week it's been a nightmare. And um, I'm not involved in the schools anymore, but I was tangentially um as doing like adjunct stuff, I guess. Um, I, I have a couple things that I'm holding in my mind that are um, in conflict. So it at face value, it looks like the union is like using the pandemic maybe to leverage for other things for the teachers. Which you know, of I'm I guess is that just, that's like something that just happens, and that's like politics as usual. Um, but it seems just so disingenuous. I don't know really where to fall on it. They got all this money last year to prepare the schools, knowing there was going to be a whole nother wave, and um, now they're still closing, and it's really just poorly affecting the least uh, advantaged people in the city. Um, and so I, it's, it just seems so political and I don't know, um, how to talk to my CPS or union friends, uh, about it. Cause, uh, I think that, that's, of, yeah. that's always tricky because I, I understand why Democrats support teachers. And I, I, it's just, there's this thing that happens where you, when you go from supporting a group in the abstract to supporting some particular instantiation of that group, like the the teachers union, like, you know, unions are, are fighting at core for their workers to be able to 
have better working conditions and get better pay. And the idea that that would never come into conflict with what's best for kids is sort of silly. So I, I think knee-jerk support for specific unions isn't really progressive necessarily because sometimes yeah. their interests are run counter to the interests of a group you care about, like the kids in a major American city. Right. It's, it's, you know, I hear a lot of clamoring about like, just dissolve the union is of course the most extreme and that'll never happen. But I mean, imagine if that happened there, who's going to protect the teachers then they don't get shit from the, yeah. <laughs> from the city. They don't get oh, any. Teachers are horribly underpaid and have ridiculous. It's really like this. absurd. Uh, yeah, it's but then on the other hand, using something like this and like, I, I can't even imagine the strain that they're putting on, you know, the poorest. You know, it, it's kind of untenable in that way, too. I mean, it's, it's a nightmare. Yeah, it really is. I, I just, I don't know. I guess I have trouble like holding both those things. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's hard to do, but like, it's, I guess an important skill to cultivate. And I, I don't know enough about this to really express an opinion. I was just uh, saying something I'd noticed about sort of the discourse surrounding teachers unions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, thanks. <laughs> thanks, Bobby. Appreciate it. Sorry. I couldn't be more <laughs> substantive. Tina, what's up? I'm really, so we're going to have Tina and then we're going to have E and then I really, am going to cut it off there just because um, I do have to do some other stuff, but great conversation. Today, and I appreciate all the calls. Tina, what's up? Thank you for the conversation. Wondering if Substack would allow you and Katie to bring a show to this format. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, the short answer is no, just because our, our deal with them is that we are doing it on Substack. We could maybe carve out a thing where like a one-time thing, which would be interesting. And I'm, I'm going to ask about that because I think that would be really fun. The first time I did one of these or the second Katie came on for a little bit and it was fun. So yeah. Now we do for our subscribers, Katie and I do a regular video hangout or every few months at least. But um, I think this could be a good format for that. So it's a good thought. Thanks. Have a good weekend. Thank you, Tina. E, what is up? Hey, how you doing? Um, so totally kind of random question, but I was just curious um, your thoughts about um, Crystal Ball and Sagar and Jetty and their journalism, their show, and like whether you like it and maybe what parts of their politics you might overlap with and align with and what parts you don't. So I, I'm embarrassingly unfamiliar with them just as I'm behind on so much other content I want to check out. I did watch an episode they did on the uh, Rittenhouse case. Uh, people pointed me toward it because they sort of cited my work favorably. I I, I liked their chemistry. Uh, my understanding is there might be some political disagreement, but I just found it to be like a pretty straightforward an unpretentious show and I could tell why it had been so successful. I just think they're very like confident and talented presenters, but uh, yeah, I don't know much about it beyond that. I'm again, embarrassed to say, are you, are you a fan of them? Uh, yeah, I am. I mean, I, I have some issues with them, but I, I, I appreciate just in general. I mean, I appreciate the fact that it seems more like honest and natural and it's not like these five minutes cable newsy kind of, you know, what do you think? What do you think? All right, let's go to break. Yeah, what what I found interesting about a lot of the sort of newer generation of like, I don't know, crowdfunded or independent or whatever you want to call it. Like I, I, I hear from so many listeners and readers who explicitly tell me that they like they do disagree with me sometimes or a lot, but they still I don't know, they just like to watch the way Katie and I talk stuff through or the way I reason stuff through on my newsletter. And that's so different from sort of the mainstream progressive spaces where there's a large and increasing number of issues on which you're not allowed to disagree and disagreement is seen as sort of 
you know, it's pathologized basically. I just, I just think that the other way of looking things is, is so much healthier. And if you don't develop uh, news consumption habits that bring you in touch with folks you disagree with, like you're, you're really missing out. You're not going to become a well-rounded reader. Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree with all of that. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, I feel that we ended with two calls where I had very little to offer on the Chicago stuff and uh, crystal ball. But, um, Anyway, thank you guys for listening. This was a good crowd, especially for a random Friday afternoon on short notice. And I appreciate the calls and the insights. And uh, I would just ask if you like the show, please tell people about it. Get more people on Colin. Get more people to follow me uh, and to listen to the show. And uh, you'll hear more from me soon. Thank you and have a good weekend. And happy one six. <laughs>